0: During this podcast, we'll discuss Healthcare Without Harm's efforts to mitigate global warming by reducing the industry's greenhouse gas emissions. With me to discuss the topic is Ms. Jessica Wolf, Director of Climate and Health at Healthcare Without Harm. Ms. Wolf, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, and I'm looking forward to having this conversation.
0: Great. Thank you again. Uh, Jessica's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. On background, listeners may be aware I posted hyperlinks to three global warming-related essays on the podcast website over the last year. In several of these, I discussed, among other things, the findings of the 2017 Congressionally Mandated Climate Science Special Report, or the CCSR, with the recent intergovernmental panel on climate change report titled Global Warming at 1.5 Degrees Centigrade. It is a good time to examine what the healthcare industry is doing to reduce its carbon footprint. Concerning the UN's IPCC report, it concluded global temperature increases below 2 degrees centigrade or 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit, or at least 1.5 degrees centigrade or 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit, would still cause extreme harm to the planet. As an aside, the goal of the Paris Climate Accord was to keep warming below 2 degrees centigrade. For example, the IPCC report found that at 1.5 degrees centigrade, we would still lose 70 to 90 percent of coral reefs, at 2%, they found a 99% loss. The IPCC concluded, in order to limit warming to an additional half degree, we've already experienced one, point, uh, 1 degree rather centigrade of warming to date, greenhouse gas emissions would have to be cut by 45% from 2010 levels by 2030 and by 100% by 2050. The IPCC recognized, IPCC recognized Rather, the effort required would be so great, quote unquote, there is no documented historical precedent. As for the healthcare industry, it is the second largest emitter of greenhouse gas pollution after the food industry, accounting for nearly 10% of total U.S. emissions. One would think the industry would, in aggregate, be working diligently towards doing no harm or quickly become carbon neutral. However, industry efforts, again, in aggregate, have been limited. As a result, the industry ironically has been contributing to the very diseases it's supposedly trying to prevent. When the IPCC released its report earlier this month, for example, the American Medical Association, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Hospital Association, and the American Health Insurance Plans, along with numerous other trade associations, made no comment. With me again to discuss the healthcare industry efforts to address the quote unquote biggest global threat to health is again HCWH's Jessica Wolf. So Jessica, sorry with that. As an unusually long uh, background introduction, uh, let me start by asking about your organization. So basically, if you could tell me why it was formed and could you provide an overview of its current efforts?
1: Sure, thank you. So Healthcare Without Harm is an international nonprofit that was founded in 1996, and we work to transform healthcare worldwide to reduce its environmental footprint, become a community anchor for sustainability and resilience, and a leader in the global movement for environmental health and justice. We have regional offices and work in part with through partner organizations in ten countries, representing a global network of more than thirty two thousand hospitals and health centers in fifty two countries. The first campaign was around mercury elimination, and we started in one Boston hospital and scaled to a global collaboration with the World Health Organization. In 2013, the world's government signed the Minamata Convention on Mercury, which committed to the global phase out of mercury in medical devices by 2020. That um, Our focus today has shifted to what you uh, aptly called the greatest public health threat of the 21st century, climate change, which, um, as you've also noted, is also uh, an opportunity and a really an opportunity to improve health and health equity. The way we work in the United States is we have uh, on climate is we have the Health Care Without Farm Climate and Health Program, and then we have two sister organizations. We have Practice Green Health, which is our uh, membership organization on healthcare sustainability, Um, in which we have over 1,100 U.S. hospital members, so about a fifth of all the hospitals in the country. And Practice Green Health acts as our implementation arm to help us scale our initiatives throughout the health sector. In 2016, Healthcare Without Harm, Practice Green Health, and a number of our leading health systems formed uh, an organization called Green Health Exchange. And this is a supply chain organization to help hospitals identify, source, contract, and purchase sustainable, low-carbon products and services. So that gives you a sense of the organizational structure.
0: Okay. Um, th- do you
1: want me to jump into to, to the work we're doing? Yes.
0: Yeah, so my next question is, so that is a general overview. is helpful. Thank you. So let's go specifically to your work uh, as Director of Climate and Health. So can you give me an overview, and we'll drill down from there? Sure.
1: Um And I think for your listeners, the piece you referenced, um, As the World burns, that was published last November, that you wrote on Three Quarks Daily, um, really does a nice job of talking about the changes we're seeing due to climate change, the science behind those changes, and the health impacts um, that you summarized from the key scientific papers. Um, Just to get us all on the same page, you know, we know climate change is already damaging human health and will have a greater impact in the future, and these changes are disproportionately impacting vulnerable populations. The health effects are really wide and varied, including increased respiratory and cardiovascular disease, injuries and premature deaths from extreme weather events, changes in the prevalence and geographic distribution of vector-borne food and waterborne illnesses, and threats to mental health. Um, Healthcare is at the front line of climate change, bearing the cost of these increased diseases and more frequent extreme weather events. We know the worst effects of climate change can be prevented, although the you know, recent IPCC report is really um, like a smoke alarm in the kitchen, I guess. Um, and such prevention is, is it, can be an opportunity for us. Um, you did point out, both in that uh, piece from last November and today, um, the missing voice of the medical community and healthcare sector. And I would certainly agree that the sector has lagged behind corporate America, higher ed, faith-based institutions. And that fact is concerning, but I do think things are changing and really uh, excited to talk about how, how that's happening. So, um, the healthcare sector has a unique responsibility and opportunity to act. Healthcare is the only industry with a healing mission and has committed to do no harm, yet as you pointed out, healthcare operations contribute significantly to climate change and the diseases we're trying to treat. You mentioned that um, estimate of that contribution to greenhouse gas emissions in the US is at ten percent. And if you want to look at that relative contribution, if the US healthcare sector were its own country, it would rank thirteenth. In the world for greenhouse gas emissions ahead of the United Kingdom. But on the flip side of that, healthcare represents 18% of the US GDP. So we have a huge opportunity to use that purchasing power and influence to drive the transition to clean energy and a low carbon supply chain. So uh, the other piece of that is the healthcare voice. Um, using healthcare's trusted and credible voice to help define climate change as a health issue, not a bipartisan issue, focusing on clean air, healthy communities, and lower healthcare costs from implementing climate solutions. So we do that work by, um, engaging our hospital network in a three pillar framework of climate smart healthcare. And that three pillar framework is mitigation. So, helping the healthcare sector reduce its carbon footprint and implement low-carbon healthcare delivery, and again influencing the supply chain to to help with a market transition to a low-carbon economy. We work on resilience so to help the healthcare sector prepare its facilities for climate impacts, and for them to be an anchor for community re- with health and resilience. And then we work on leadership, which is really an advocacy and communication strategy. So, youth, having healthcare institutions and healthcare professionals act as critical messengers for framing climate change as a public health threat and becoming advocates for climate smart policies at all levels of government and in healthcare organizations.
0: Okay, thank you. That's a very helpful overview. I appreciate it. Let's, let's go specifically to number one of the three uh, mitigation. Uh, and we could get to uh, the recent meeting in um, San Francisco, the Global Climate Action Summit, which actually had an affiliated event titled the Global Climate and Health Forum. And I note those that meeting uh, because there are several comments made by large uh, integrated healthcare systems about what year they expect to be carbon neutral. So I think it would be helpful if you were to highlight or profile some of the more um, dedicated uh, health care providers who are going to reach carbon neutral. Uh, so who are they and how are they doing it? And specifically, if you could explain exactly what's the definition of carbon neutral. It's not, for example, Kaiser, who pledges to be neutral sometime in 2020. It's not as if they're going to unplug uh, from, for example, Pacific Gas and Electric. So a definition maybe would be helpful as well.
1: Sure. Um, So the examples I'm going to give you, I'm going to primarily draw from um, our U.S. Healthcare Climate Council, which is a leadership body of 19 health systems that we work with really as our incubator, our innovator. So we work with them to um, identify, you know, innovative climate solutions and then create tools and resources to help scale them through this larger network. So you mentioned Kaiser. And and Kaiser's got a a two-phase goal. So they've committed to carbon neutrality in 2020, and they've committed to be carbon net positive by 2025. Um, Most of the goals we're seeing uh, across sectors, Um, if you really dig down and and start to understand greenhouse gas accounting, most of these goals only cover what we call scope one and scope two. So what's what's in people's control, you know, so what happens – Scope one includes energy that is used on site, so uh, often for um, heating and ventilation. Um, In healthcare, it it, it includes um, fleet vehicles, it includes, in healthcare, anesthetic gases, it includes refrigerant. Scope two is the energy that's purchased, so that's, you know, purchased electricity or purchased um, steam for most um, companies and businesses. So most of the goals that you're seeing out there, um, they're usually only covering scope one and scope two. So scope three is a huge contributor, which is all the supply chain stuff. Um, but when so the, so Kaiser's goal for carbon neutrality and carbon net positivity is for scope one and scope two, and I think you're right. Carbon neutrality, what it means is they're going to be having to use offsets. So um, they just, for instance, entered into a deal in September where they'll be purchasing 180 megawatts of wind and solar. Um, and it's this investment is guaranteed to be the off-taker of that energy that's going to allow um, that renewable installation to be built. And um, that will offset their use of the fossil fuels that they're still you know, using to power their facilities.
0: Right, so it's, it's, a, trade. it's a trade-off. Doing,
1: uh, um, yeah, it's a trade-off.
0: Yes, okay. Thank you.
1: Um, um, and and there, this Kaiser is also um, you know, doing on-site solar, so um, they, they have, I think right now, about 31 megawatts of on-site solar at their hospitals. Um, what's interesting about Kaiser and what really makes them a leader in this this newer deal of the 180 megawatts really shows that. Um, that this, this will be enough renewable energy to power 27 7 of its 39 hospitals year-round. But a real note is that it includes 110 megawatts of battery storage capacity, and that's going to be the nation's largest battery energy storage system. And that's the real key for hospitals is storage, which is expensive. Um, And because Kaiser Permanente is in California, they were able to work with the California Energy Commission, and they're currently actually running a pilot of a renewable energy microgrid at their uh, Richmond site. And that's really exciting work, and I think – we we need to see more of that type of leadership. The other uh, couple of hospitals or health systems I'd like to mention, um, because I, I want to be clear that it's not just California. We have a health system that's based in Wisconsin, Gunderson Health System. Mm-hmm. Back in two thousand eight back back in two thousand eight they had a goal of um, reaching energy independence. They started with just conservation and energy efficiency efforts, and they reduced their energy demands by about fifty three percent, and it, and, of course, what's important for healthcare, care, which always has tight margins, is that reduction in energy usage resulted in cumulative financial savings of more than $11 million. Um, but in order to continue to get to energy independence, they have implemented every type of renewable energy, um, wind, solar, geothermal, landfill gas, biomass. And they did it very creatively. They have a lot of partnerships, both you know, using landfill gas from a county landfill to partnering with Organic Valley on um, a wind farm to working with uh, local farmers on anaerobic digestion. So they are really such an innovative health system. And they are in the middle of the country. And I think, you know, everyone always says, oh, well, you could do it in California, you could do it in Massachusetts, but Gunderson
0: is doing it in Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I'm glad you mentioned uh, savings, because that's obviously an important and related question. Uh, Could you say more about uh, just the financial upside? Because the classic criticism is it's too expensive or there are alternative or competing fuels that are cheaper. Yeah,
1: I mean, I think um, we are Consistently seeing the, you know, prices of solar and wind and renewables drop, um, but I do think that's always a challenge in every business um, and in obviously in healthcare. Of, of not spe- of not spending money but saving money. So I think that's why often you see health systems starting with conservation and energy efficiency measures and then trying to figure out how to make renewables work. I think that's getting easier and easier. There's more and more business models that you can that they can make it work um, with power purchase agreements. You don't need to have a capital investment necessarily. Um, you don't have to take the risk of owning those renewables so I think we're seeing that change I think it is challenging because often these large energy users which you know hospitals are get very good uh, deals per kilowatt-hour so it's sometimes hard to match them but it's got to go beyond you know there's there's other costs that are involved when you're burning fossil fuels and that directly impacts your community it directly impacts the health of your community and in the end the hospital is bearing those costs so I think when you're thinking about healthcare in a population health-based model, and you can look at those those additional costs, you start to see a, a more uh, holistic picture.
0: Right. So we would term those oftentimes spillover effects or positive spillover effects. Relative to Kaiser, I'll just make mention there was formed recently the California Healthcare Climate Alliance. KP Kaiser is one of the founding members, along with. Just to note, Dignity, Providence, St. Joseph, and Sutter. So I do want to make note of that. Let me ask you, amongst the, uh, so you mentioned mitigation again, resilience, and uh, leadership. I will say on the resilience, uh, to introduce here the federal government's uh, role, they've been slowly requiring, uh, for example, providers, um, inpatient providers, to exhibit or demonstrate resilience as it relates to backup generation in extreme weather events, uh, et cetera. So uh, relative to the Medicare program and CMS is coming around uh, on this, on the resilience. You mentioned leadership. I would like to ask you um, about the extent to which uh, the industry and leaders in this uh, effort are working with their state leadership or federal because the classic line is every congressman, for example, has a hospital in their district such that elected officials are sensitive to health care because they have uh, these, uh, again in their district, whom employ a lot of their constituents.
1: Yes, um, and thank you for mentioning the California Healthcare Climate Alliance. That is um, an initiative of Health Without Harm. We helped to launch the alliance and are staffing that alliance. Um, UC Health also joined. Oh, great. right around the time of the Global Climate Action Summit. So we now have the five largest health systems in California. They represent 22% of those hospitals. And uh, that was really launched as an advocacy body. So it's really a vehicle to bring health care's expertise and experience and voice to the legislative and regulatory process to really advocate for climate-smart policies. And we are often running now with that alliance. We have a very supportive governor's office, so we've been meeting with different government agencies to talk about how to give input and feedback in the rulemaking process um, and are getting ready to be involved in the next legislative session in California. So that's a uh, really um, true show of leadership and um, excited to continue to expand that. We're also working and have support from the California Hospital Association. So we're hoping this becomes is, is a channel and a way to make this work. Uh, and and this frame more mainstream. Um, In terms of um, other advocacy or leadership efforts, last fall our Climate Council did an educational briefing on climate resilience for the staffers of the members of the Bipartisan Climate Solutions Caucus and members for their district in D.C., uh, we also are working with our health systems and one of our policy partners, an organization called Ceres, which you're maybe familiar with, C-E-R-E-S, mm-hmm. um, and they do state, they state policy and they work with a lot of businesses. So we've partnered with Ceres on a lot of state advocacy efforts. Um, so we have our health system, both our healthcare institutions and individual physicians have been um participating in advocacy for the renewable portfolio standards in Massachusetts and Ohio. Um, They're going, you know, we're doing advocacy days. They're writing letters to the editor and op-eds. They're going to meet with their legislators. Uh, Most recently, uh, Virginia Mason, another one of our healthcare climate council members in Seattle, just voiced public support for the carbon fee, which is on the ballot in Washington. So we have, more and more health systems stepping up and stepping outside their four walls. And I think one of the pieces for us when we talk to our health systems about leadership is you can't do what you need to do in terms of climate smart healthcare inside your four walls without influencing and talking to the folks outside because the regulatory and policy environment greatly impacts their ability to do this work. Um, you know, because hospitals are regulated for health and safety, they don't have as easy a time doing things. So, for instance, they may need a permit and, and have to have a waiting period and pay money in order to do something like change a ballast from a fluorescent ballast to an LED ballast. That's a barrier that, you know, corporate America doesn't have. So we have to figure out ways to streamline the process and support healthcare in doing this work, and also having their voice heard in climate action plans and regional resilience planning, because very often there's a lot of talk about health, but no one's talking about healthcare and the delivery of service.
0: Right. Thank you. Um, you're right. I appreciate your mentioning On the Ballot in the state of Washington is a carbon-related um, initiative. Um, I did actually look up, uh, so let's hope it passes, but... The uh, state of Washington contributes 2.6% of the uh, U.S. GDP, but certainly it's a start. Um, let, let, <laughs> let, 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 me, let me ask to the extent, uh, so, you know, state levels, which you uh, gave examples thereof, at the federal level, and let me just throw this idea out. So, of course, the Medicare program is pushing 60 million uh, beneficiaries, it's north of $700 billion a year. I did mention the fact that. As it relates to resiliency, there are increasing regulations to require that uh, inpatient, acute, and post acute providers demonstrate they have electrical capacity, um, generator capacity, if and when, as CMS would term, they experience an extreme and uncontrollable circumstance. Uh, But let me take that further. I mean, the obvious, an obvious next step is the extent to which uh, the federal government, since, of course, healthcare is highly regulated. The extent to which the federal government at some point in time requires providers, certainly the larger hospitals over time and a stepped or staged in progression, that they be increasingly carbon neutral as a condition of participation. Has that been discussed, or do you have a um, a view on that?
1: Well, I think you should come work for us, David. <laughs> um, you know, this is not an official position of healthcare without harm. Sure. But I think the idea that there would be, we certainly talked about what if reimbursement was tied to climate preparedness. Right. Because, you know, when, pe- when people, when facilities are looking at their vulnerabilities, you know, depending what, you have to look at how climate is changing the risks of the, Was and all those things. So, most of the available information is based on historical um, data. And and that doesn't help us going forward anymore. I mean, if you look what happened to NYU Langone in Hurricane Sandy, you know, they had an 8 foot or 12 foot, whatever it was, seawall to protect their generator, but the storm went right over it. So, yeah, high tide and full moon.
0: Right. Yes. Yes.
1: Yep. Yep. So, you know, they lost. 700 million dollars in research alone and and even even that number doesn't help you because how do you replace all those generations of research animals that you've bred over the years so there are many costs that are not even going to be reimbursed and i think that with resilience really points to health systems recognizing that investments now are are beneficial and we actually put out a a uh, paper called Safe Haven, Protecting Lives and Margins with Climate Smart Healthcare, And that's really making that resilience argument to the C-suite to really understand the benefits of preparedness and and the cost of being ill-prepared. And what we do in that paper is we look at NYU and, and the changes they've made since then. We look at uh, Texas Medical Center and how they fared in Allison back in 2001, and they did not fare well. And how beautifully they fared during hurricane harvey the problem was there wasn't enough community resilience but the you know none of those hospitals closed the texas for the twenty twenty texas medical center facilities um and then we have you know this shining star in boston of partners healthcare and their spalding rehab which was built right on um boston harbor and this is where the boston marathon victims did their rehab just as it opened and they built that uh, rehab building based on true predictions and and climate risk was part of that vulnerability assessment so they built for sea level rise they built for flooding they built for all of those pieces you know all of those critical pieces of equipment are are elevated or on the roof or up on upper floors and it's a real model of how to build a hospital and if you look at the case studies partners putting out about Spalding. They're also saving money by building a resilient building and they're also making patients much happier there's operable windows there there's you know so God forbid what happened at Katrina and you had to get out you can get out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know there's a lot there's a lot of benefits to building a green or lead and climate resilient building
0: across the board Thank you uh, we have uh, time for really just a last question so. I'm sure you get this question in, in several ways, shapes, and forms, uh, so I'll ask it, and that is, this is the 30-second elevator speech question. So uh, you meet, speaking of C-suite, you meet a chief financial officer, a CEO at an uh, inpatient facility, uh, so they have bricks and mortar, uh, and even, let's say, a large multi-physician practice group office. Uh, what's, what would you tell them?
1: Uh, what would I tell them? I would tell them, that climate change is the greatest public health threat and the greatest public health opportunity of the 21st century. Come join us in the transition to climate-smart health care, and you will be benefiting the health of your patients, your community, and the bottom line of health care.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. In fact, I appreciate you noting this and putting this in context of population health, and particularly uh, because we do know, certainly, and uh, not surprisingly, that the immediate or, or near term effects are uh, on the vulnerable. So, pregnant women, children, and the frail elderly uh, sadly always suffer the most and suffer first. Uh, so, obviously, we do want to make a note of that. It's very important. So, Jessica, we're at our time. I'm genuinely thankful. Uh, there are many more facets of this about which we could discuss. I think maybe. We'll schedule some more time in the future and cover some of the other dimensions of this Uh, but this is a good introduction or start and I applaud your work and I I wish you every success so thank you again. Thank you so much David. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic or to hear an archived program, please visit our website thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening and please listen again soon.